I want to get straight into the discussion before that. Let's look at the labels that these women uh, have been called. Now, try and guess. She's been called loud, opinionated, a supporter of terrorists. Who could that be? Please welcome writer and author, TV and radio presenter and social advocate, Yasmin Abdelmajid. Our next panelist has been described as hysterical, extreme left of politics representing 0.001% of Australia safely ignored. And she puts it down to her ovaries. Social commentator, playwright, novelist, and Guardian columnist, Van Madam. And she's been called fat, shrill, which, by the way, is the name of her book. Very clever. And quite possibly, and I think the most hurtful, anti-comedy. <laughs> How dare they? Writer, author, performer, body image champion, and troll slayer, Lindy West. <laughs> so, Lindy, let's start with you. Now, soon after that televised debate, women started claiming they were nasty women. There were badges, there were hashtags, there were T-shirts, there were mugs, there were everything. Has that become the new feminist rallying cry? Uh, I, yeah, it's, been, it's become a feminist rallying cry, definitely. Personally, I think I prefer Nevertheless, She Persisted, which was the more recent... That came much right, yeah. Um, there's a reason why, why nasty is... A, I hate the word nasty, it's so, so like sexual, and I'm, I'm kind of a prude. Um, I, I know, I know. It's, dorky. Um, but yeah, you know, there's always been tremendous power. Oh, he stole the word tremendous. I can't even say tremendous. Donald Trump took tremendous from us. And huge. And huge. I mean, yeah, it was bigly. That's true. There's always been bigly power in um, reclaiming terms, uh, reclaiming terms that have been used to hurt us. This is something that you see across social justice movements. And, um, it, you know, it was fun to see nasty, nasty woman immediately snatched and turned back on Donald Trump. So as much as it, I, I'm um, shy and embarrassed to say it, yes, uh, I'm, I am very nasty. <laughs> Good for you, honey. Good for you. She's blushing. Now, Van, the uh, Oxford English Dictionary describes or defines nasty as unpleasant, repugnant, spiteful, and there was an earlier meaning included devoid of morals. And that's something women want to reclaim. That's definitely me. I mean, clearly. I mean, you only have to look at the work that I do. If any of you read my column in The Garden, in The Guardian, in The Guardian, in, in the Guardian you know, my relentless commitment to immoral causes like fair and equal pay, uh, like industrial rights in the workplace and taxation fairness. I mean, I think as Australians and, you know, obviously in the same Western family as our American cousins, these are deeply immoral positions to hold. I mean, getting up in the morning and going, you know, I think all human beings are born equal. I mean, that's kind of controversial, really. Um, and I realise I only represent the 0.001% uh, of the extreme left uh, community of safely ignored people. Hello, Full House, the Opera House. Hi. 
I'm, I'm very committed to my moral positions. I also have a problem with the word nasty because it's a word I associate with a yeast infection. Like. Oh. Strident. Oh. Um, but, you know, if, if we're all in this together, ladies, um, nasty, I guess it's going to have to be. That happens to the best of us. Yasmin, would you term yourself a nasty woman? Do you have any quibbles about being termed nasty? I mean, it depends on the tone in which you say it, right? <laughs> nasty. I'm a nasty woman, yeah. right? Definitely. <laughs> I've definitely not said it in my home. My father, I think, would not quite know what to do with it. Um, but I, it's, it's definitely a term that, uh, in the way that it was presented, that I definitely resonate with. This idea of, you know, women essentially having opinions or presenting views or just trying to engage in the world. And rather than being engaged with at that level, it becomes a personal attack, right? And any number of things are used to try to bring you down. And so whether the term is nasty woman or whether it's anything else, I think the idea of reclaiming that and being like, sure, whatever it is that you want to call me, I'm going to take that and I'm going to continue doing the awesome thing that I was doing, regardless of this attack that you're levelling against me. I'm down for that. What do you think it says about the person that uses a term to denigrate a woman? I think they're not good enough to be able to argue back. Right? Like, they clearly... The best that they can do is level a personal attack because instead of engaging with the topic at hand, instead of sort of saying, well, I'm going to rise to your level, it is, I've got nothing, so I'm going to bring you down as a human. I actually can't see you as an equal to me, so I'm going to try to bring you down. Um, and, and I think it's, um, yeah, it is, it is, it's also, I think, an interesting, like, how do you engage with that? without sort of going that, to that level, I think it's, it's a challenge. Van, you were about to say something. Lily. I beg your pardon. <laughs> no, it's fine. I beg your pardon. I'm getting my nasty women mixed up. I know. So we're all nasty. We're all equally nasty. I know. It's, um, <laughs> um, but uh, no, I was going to say that it's, really t- it's very telling uh, what it was that Hillary was doing that, that uh, qualified her as nasty. She was just being, she was being good at her job actually doing the job that she was supposed to be doing, which was talking about policy and <laughs> running for president instead of whatever Donald Trump was doing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if, if that's your definition of nasty, great. You're, oh, your definition is um, capable. And, and, and it wasn't just that she was doing her job. It was that she was better than him. Mm. Um, I, obviously. I mean, I don't... <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think it's... And that was his only weapon against her. Yeah, his only weapon is this weird left field sort of um, just in contextless insult, you know. Um, so I think I just think it's really interesting that, that the thing that is most threatening—it's not even—it's uh, just her doing her job. It's just a woman presuming to um, be better at something than a man. Yeah, and presuming to exist, right? With, like in the same space. It's, it's the very existence of women, and particularly women of colour, and I think of, you know, of all the different sort of marginalisations that you can put on it, the very existence makes you political. The very existence makes you confronting and controversial, right? And, and so the only response people have to that is to try to bring 
the individual down because they can't engage, with, they can't seem to engage with that. I think there's more to it, and I think at this particular political moment, we have to recognise that, particularly in Trump's case, these are very deliberate tactics. And they're tactics about who gets power and who doesn't, and they're being wielded by, let's use the P word, patriarchy. They're being used by a community of people and societies in which we live who have had power for a long time and are quite determined not to give it up. And what Donald Trump was saying with his nasty woman comment, it, it wasn't actually about Donald Trump the person to Hillary Clinton the person. Because we know that Donald Trump used to be a registered Democrat. He used to go to fundraisers for the Clintons. And they've got an association which goes back a long time. The nasty woman comment was to his electorate. And it was a comment to get votes. And it was a comment to an audience of specifically white men to say, this woman will only have power over you if you give it to her. If you give your power to me, you, we can hold them off. We can hold off the inevitable march of women and we can hold off the inevitable march of people of colour and we can hold off the, the threats to our power base. And this is what they're doing with, with the language and particularly with levelling the insults. It's not about whether you or me are nasty or good or bad or immoral or whatever. It's about the fact that we're trying to build... Uh, movements to build democratic majorities to take power and change the structure of the society in which we live to enfranchise people. And these guys are not going down without a fight. So they are communicating to one another. We can negate them by denying them votes, by taking their power away, by disabling the structures by which they can level influence. That is what is going on. Van, why do you think... Why do you think it's not the same when a man is called this, a similar sort of derogatory term? What are they called? What are they called? And why is it not the same? Because they have status, because they have power, because they have the networks of power. I mean, why does Mark Latham still have a career? You know? Who <laughs> knows? Like, Mark Latham doesn't still have a career because he's a better writer or a more talented writer or that he has better or clearer or more articulate opinions or particular insights or a great analysis, inc incredible experience or great education. These are not the reasons why we still see him on TV. We still see him on TV and in newspapers and whatever because he has a network of other men and women who facilitate him. That's how power works. People who have money and resources enfranchising other people into the institutions by which they can exercise influence. And this is the issue. This is what we're mm. fighting against. Because women don't earn as much as men. We don't control the media empires. We don't control the democratic majorities. Like, we are slowly exercising influence through social movements, through trade unions and other um, community democratic structures. But the reason why we're disempowered and locked out of that conversation is because we don't wield resources to the extent that that particular club of men do. And this is why, you know, I'm always... You are not doing feminism properly if you're not a member of a trade union. You know, if you want to change the society you live in, you have to join a community organisation. Like, we're fighting a war about which is our intentions versus their power, and we have to be very clear about what our commitment has got to be in order to change that dynamic. And do you agree that there is a need for a community of feminists to fight together? Oh, absolutely. I mean, of course, there's no... We have so little institutional power that the only power we really have is numbers. And, um, you know, if you even shrink it down to a, a micro level, if you're the only woman in the office speaking out about sexual harassment, 
you're fired, you're out. Whereas if every single woman in the office, assuming there's more than one woman in your office, which I guess is not... Not always the case. Not always the oh. case. Um, but, you know, that's where power comes from, and that's where leverage comes from. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, the thing about Donald Trump, you know, nasty woman just being a signal to his base, it, they're not even subtle about it. It's not even just... Um, this sort of tacit signal, you know, his campaign slogan was Make America Great Again, which is an explicit call for a return to a time when the white male patriarchal family structure ruled America. And, you know, Donald Trump, don't even worry about it. He's going to be the dad. <laughs> He's going to be the strong dad of the country. You guys just go play in your rooms. Um, and I, I think there are a lot of people who've traditionally been protected under that structure, which means, you know, other white people, especially white men, who find a lot of comfort in it. And to me, that was the underlying message of this entire campaign. It was like, don't worry, we're going to go back to this quieter time when everyone else knew their place and they didn't, um, you know, try to get you fired because you, you know, tried to, because you grabbed them by their um, sexual parts. <laughs> <laughs> So, Yasmin, where do we start then? You know, very obviously, we're preaching to the converted here. We're all on the same level here. But the people who didn't come to this lecture, how do you get them to understand this point of view? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I think about quite often. So my uh, day job, as it were, for a long time, I, I studied mechanical engineering and worked as um, an engineer on oil and gas rigs. And so I usually was the only woman, right? And so the question for me was always broader, is the question that you're talking about, Van, is how do we, how do we create structural change? Because right now, no matter how much each, of, each one of us as women do in our own spaces, it is an individual effort by and large. We may be part of a community and coming from a community, but it is an individual effort, and it is that effort as an individual versus a network and a structure that is very invested in holding its power, right? That right now, if, if power is a dining table and there are 10 seats and white blokes have them all, in order for it to be equal, five blokes have to leave, right? They ain't giving up their seats without a fight. Right, that's what, like, unless, and somebody once said to me, well, why don't you bring more seats to the table? I'm like, that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. The, the whole piece around power is the scarcity of it, right? And only certain people get it, right? And, and the people that do get it w want to keep it. There, there's this fascinating thing around the wealth paradox. So you think that people that do make it would be more generous to the people behind them. But in fact, the more that they get, the more that they gain, the wealthier they are, the more status they have, the more they want to hold on to it. Mm. They don't want to go back to where they were, right? They don't want, it's like, it's like waves of migrants who tend to be the most conservative when it comes to new migrants because they're like, well, well we had to work really hard. We don't want to give up our position. We don't want to let anyone else in. Um, where do we start? I mean, I'm all for smashing all of the systems, right? Because none of the systems seem to be working out really well for us, right? Um, whether, it, whether it is the patriarchy, and I think the words are interesting because they signal... Um, ways that systems and structures used to lock people out historically, right? We're going back to words like hysterical that used to, um, were used to label women and to sort of silence women completely throughout time. We're using words like they're too loud, which is something you will never hear of a bloke, right? Like ever. Um, and so I think it's about thinking, you know, whether it is joining traditional, like, existing communities like unions or thinking of... I mean, I'm... At this stage, I'm actually at the point where 
I encourage women to run their own businesses, to essentially create new structures, because right now in the system that we do live in, which is a capitalist structure, right, if we're going to exist within that system without completely changing capitalism, which I think is another interesting conversation. Um, but, you know, people are like, what, communist? No. Um, I, it's fine. I just like the colour red. Um, no. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of really awkward faces at the front. Maybe she does support terrorism. It's fine. <laughs> I don't. Um, just a Facebook comment. No, I'm kidding. Um, I just, it's fun making people really uncomfortable. Um, I, so I guess it's about if we are going to exist within a, a structure that power is in financial resources, then how do we, who runs media companies? They're all blokes, right? So they get to call the shot. Who owns the companies? They aren't women, right? Who owns all of the, um, ev like essentially everything, right? We may be able to get high positions and work in them, but it's so capped, right? So unless we start building or using existing structures to build systems that are completely going to disempower what already exists. We're fighting a battle that is very, very conditional. Okay, so let's just say we want to use the existing structure instead of doing the whole anarchist thing and just tearing it all down. I'm with you anyway. <laughs> um, it, if we're supposed to use the existing structure and the structure and the system is built by men, is a patriarchal system, how do you co-opt those in power that run the system to come onto the nasty women's side? Well, you, you exercise your power. I mean, we're celebrating International Women's Day. International Women's Day began as a trade union strike protest in New York after a number of women had been killed in totally avoidable factory fires around the garment district in New York. And women walked off the job in 1909 saying we'd rather starve quick than starve slow. And they exercised their labour power. Uh, they walked off the job, they stopped the company they worked for from being able to continue to produce, and they had an effect that obviously is still echoing through mm. the generations because here we are. That's a statement they put out to the community. I mean, I think part of the problem that we're having in the West is a lot of people forgot how democracy works and why we have the structures we do. They're good structures, like the principles on which the United States of America are based. You, you know, they're about freedom and, and liberty and enfranchisement and checks on power. The, the miracle in Australia of having universal enfranchisement um, through compulsory voting, which means literally every person is... <laughs> is brought into the democratic conversation. Like, it's an obligation of the government to allow every single one of us to vote and to create that opportunity, and it's an obligation for us to exercise that vote. But how many people in this room are members of political parties? How many people in this room are members of trade unions? How many of these people have ever directly lobbied a politician? How many of the people in this room have ever blockaded an office or um, taken strike action or participated in any of those mechanisms that we know are the ones that affect the conversation? The one thing you can do in a democracy, the fundamental principle, is that if you build a majority argument, well, you determine what the structure is going to look like. I mean, I always think about... There was this period in Australia where we thought we had won. 
We thought as feminists we had won the argument. And coming from an arts background, um, you would look at the 1980s where there were all of these women's projects. There were women's theatres and a women's play touring network. I'm just talking about my own industry. This was across the country. You know, you had all these sort of feminist printing presses and feminist literary presses and feminist um, poetry publications. All of this stuff was happening. And it was resourced and we'd made the arguments and, we'd, and it was all happening. And then five years ago, we, we turned around, we had this incident in the Australian theatre where they announced the Belvoir season for the next year and of 12 plays, there were 12 directors and 11 playwrights who were men. There was only one woman on that stage and it was because we thought we'd won. Because mm, we, we thought we didn't need to exercise power anymore or make the arguments or stack the committee or turn up to the meeting or petition the person responsible. And that's what's happened in the West. We've made a lot of money in this country. Like, the, those of you who haven't travelled, travel. See how people live in other countries. See how people live in other Western countries. Our standard of living here is really high and it creates a false sense of security mm. that somehow someone is looking after us and it will be all right. Well, no one is looking after us. It is just us. And if we are not active in democracy, we get Donald Trump. And, uh, to build on that, right, it's about actually participating. And I think the fascinating thing about progress is that it's not a, it's not a place that you get to and then it's, it sticks. It's a, a thing that you constantly, like it's going uphill. You constantly have to be pushing it uphill because the system isn't set up to, for that progress. And I, I lied earlier when I said the only power is financial because the other is in people, right? The other is in numbers of people because if you think about any social change that has occurred globally throughout history, it's always been through people. It's never been the people who have power in the status quo. They're like, oh, yes, we should change to make things better for the for the marginalised, because we're good. No, it's always been masses of people that have said, actually, we want better, we deserve better. Um, and so the piece around participation, and then the piece, I think, like talking to every person and how they can create change, is thinking about what are you doing in your circles and what are the conversations that you're having in your circles and with the people around you, and are you asking everyone else to participate just like you are and will be, and are you asking people to be better? Are you, like, we can't, the idea of changing the entire world is overwhelming, but the idea of having an impact on the few people that are around us is very, very achievable, right? On the men that are in our society, on the women that are in our circles, because, that is how we all do it. That is how you make collective change. It's by each and every one of us choosing to recognise our agency and recognise the fact that we do have power in our choices. And perhaps we, we forgot, we got complacent um, and we thought, she'll be right. She's not right. And it's important to recognise the power of solidarity as well. Like, it's not just about what affects me as an individual or about what affects you as an individual. It's about the way that you and I and everybody else supports what's going on with other people. I mean, let's be honest, what Yasmin has gone through in the past couple of weeks has been some most extraordinary and flagrant misogyny and racism ever seen in public life in this country. <laughs> And it is, it is deplorable. 
The power that we have as people who have not been in the position that Yasmin has been in is to show her our solidarity, to make the public statements that we are with her, that we stand by her, that her experience is something that is, you know, enraging and upsetting to us, and to stand up for that, to come out for that. And it's that power of going, I have, I have no idea what it's like to be you, but I can see the circumstances of what you're going through is unfair, and I'm willing to stake myself to that cause, because it is, it's absolutely outrageous. Lindy. Have we become too complacent? Have we sat back too much and said, well, someone else will fight our fight? I th I'm sure, yeah, some people have, a lot of people have. There are other people who have been fighting really fiercely the whole time. Um, those tend to be the most marginalized people, the people with the most to lose, the people who have the least power. Um, and, and what we've seen after the election in the States is a lot of people, um, you know, sort of middle-class white women like me, um, uh, I mean, not me personally, I feel like I was at least semi-aware of what was going on before the election, but a lot of women who are suddenly um, like, oh, oh, this, this might impact me. And also, um, you know, they're starting to learn maybe imperfectly and slowly that solidarity is vital and that actually paying attention to the lives of, of people who are not like you and people who have already been fighting for their lives for years, decades, generations, is um, not, is, is, it's not sort of, a hobby that you can pick up and put down if, whenever you want to. It is, it's the foundation of, of equality and activism and freedom. And so, you know, I, I, the, the atmosphere in the States right now is not that kind of, is not that optimistic. There are some people who constantly are like, well, but all these people are going and protesting who've never protested before. But mostly, the, the feeling is sort of despair <laughs> and terror, you know. Um, but the one thing that we do have, you know, there is value in that, in that, in that f surge of activism and participation. And, um, you know, also, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, I need to get involved, and are learning that there are already organizations doing this work that have been doing it, that have been doing it for generations, um, and that what they need is help. They don't need some white lady to come reinvent <laughs> activism. Um, so all of this is going on, yes. <laughs> and um, and in, it's it's really encouraging. Um, you know, we take what little scraps of encouragement we can, um, but I think the only thing that can really save us at this point is numbers and is using those numbers before the window closes and Donald Trump dismantles democracy, which is really what it feels like. It feels like the system itself is in danger uh, when you have, you know, a completely unhinged, corrupt, nightmare president, and you have a Republican Congress that's willing to just roll over because they've sort of weighed their options and decided that throwing their chips in with this monster is a safer bet for their career than actually doing their job and representing their constituents. Um, all you can do is start on your local level. Uh, you know, I've been telling my daughters, don't, they're teenagers, and I've been saying, you know, don't think of running for office as something that other people do. It's something that you can do. It's something that it is for us to do. It's actually our civic duty as, as citizens. Um, and, and um, 
Yeah, no, no, I, I was just going to say um, the, the power that we have right now that is really, really vital that we exercise in the states is letting these members of Congress know that they will be fired if they don't do their job and represent us. And, you know, that requires mobilizing uh, everyone. And I don't have a lot of hope. There's a lot of talk like, oh, how can we reach Trump voters? I don't care. I don't think that they are reachable. Most of them are not reachable. <laughs> they, have, they have severed ties with reality. Uh, <laughs> they, they have completely invested themselves in this, um, you know, this hysterical, sorry, uh, I, uh, I don't know what's up, <laughs> this completely unhinged uh, bigotry that they think will keep them safe. I don't, I mean, mm. and um, we're not reaching them. But luckily, they're a pretty small number, relatively. A lot of people didn't vote at all. And those people are apolitical and consider themselves sort of not really, you know, like, oh, there's a grown-up in charge, someone will take care of it, it'll be fine, my life won't change, and their lives are going to change. And so that, to me, is the opportunity. Like, there are people who were, you know, very aggressively anti-Trump and voted for Hillary and campaigned for Hillary and did whatever we could, and then there are, so mobilizing all of those people and then also reaching all the people who didn't vote. And then the Trump voters, whatever. They'll do it. <laughs> So. Yeah, no, I, I think it's interesting. Like, so in Australia, the analogous situation, we have a number of different groups. Or, um, but in, so in my home state of Queensland, um, <laughs> literally people groaned. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so we have a, a party called One Nation, which is, I would say, the a similar kind of vibe. Um, she's upgraded <laughs> because she used to hate Asians and now she hates Muslims. I heard about this. Yeah. Um, and, and apparently that makes her a lot more sophisticated. Uh, <laughs> they're not the party they were. Yeah, exactly. They're not the party, they're not they, the party were. they were. <laughs> you know, she should really think bigger. Donald Trump is totally capable of hating all groups. <laughs> it's really inspiring. It is inspiring. She's getting there, let me tell you. <laughs> so, Single mothers, pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's too real. Uh, <laughs> 25, so they reckon one in four people will vote uh, for her in Queensland in the state election. Um, so, so, like, that must be so scary because, like, you know four people. I know. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's so crazy. <sighs> Struggle is real. Um, I've completely forgot what I was going to say. Sorry, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Um, Actually, what, while you're pausing and recollecting your thoughts, I would like to urge the audience, if you do have a question, we'd like to throw the uh, floor open to you, so please make your way to the microphones there at the edge um, of, of the aisles at the moment. And while you make the, your way to the edge of the aisles... I was just going to pick up on the point. Um, I remember somebody uh, once saying to me that you should have like the phone number for your local member and like your local paper on speed dial because the people that call up and complain are all the like are, you know older retirees like that was his characterization and he was like the thing is is that you may be fuming but if you don't actually let the people who use the tools that you have then no one will ever know about it and so i think there is definitely something empowering and sort of cuz when I thought about it, I was like, I don't think I've, at that point, I hadn't actually ever made a formal complaint about any of the awful things that I read and see all the time. And so that feeling wasn't being translated into sort of um, a response, I guess. And it's, it is coming back to that idea of we, are, we need to participate. Um, and the system, 
I do believe the system is in danger. And the reason I think that we need to be really careful is because every great empire and every great system in history has failed, right? Every empire thought they were indestructible, right? The Romans and the Greeks and the Egyptians, every empire in history, the Ottomans, they thought that they were indestructible. And at that point, when you think you're indestructible, that's when you're at your most vulnerable, right? Because it, it takes a certain type of opportunist, and those are the kind of people we're seeing right now, to be like, oh, I can use this system and play with my rules, not the rules that it's supposed to be played with, not the honor system, right? I'm not gonna honor the norms, and everybody in the past has honored the norms, that's why the system's worked. But when you have people that are willing to take advantage of it and actually don't care, then the system is really a danger of falling apart. But I think mm. Australians should take some hope. I mean, we had our Donald Trump moment because we had Tony Abbott. <laughs> and people did kick off. A broad coalition of people did kick off. And I'll he didn't that. last. He didn't even make it to a second election. You know, and but having faith in our ability to organise and to show solidarity is really important. Some of the news out from... Because there's a state election coming up in Western Australia and the One Nation vote has been a real issue, and especially because the Liberals have done a deal with One Nation to screw over the National Party, which just seems like the worst party anybody's ever been invited to. Um, <laughs> as far as... Can you imagine being in those negotiations? No, let's not even think about it. So... But the thing is, the One Nation vote, which was doing quite well a couple of weeks ago, has taken a real hit. And it's taken a hit because of the penalty rates decision. Because Pauline Hanson was in, on Insiders this morning saying that she supports the cut to penalty rates. And, you know, let's get rid of all this stuff. And because, you know, trade unions have been so vocal going, this is really going to screw over, like, up to 700,000 people. We're looking at people's take-home pain. We are with you. We will fight for you. Like, these are, this is, these are important messages of solidarity to the, some of the lowest paid people in our community, um, it's having an effect. It's winding back that vote. It's saying to those people who feel lost and disenfranchised and marginalised and that they're missing out on the prosperity and they want someone to blame. And, you know, 20 years ago it was West Want by Asians and now West Want by Muslims. And it's like, pick a scapegoat and let's just take it from there as a focus for all of our tensions and problems. It's when people mobilise around the issues that are actually more important than the vacuum of hate that the opinions do change. And we've got to have hope in that message and our capacity to organise and our capacity to speak to people about what's really important to them. Because it's only ever a tiny percentage of people who are really defined by hatred and will vote hatred more than anything else. Most people are, you know, complex. It might be their health issues, it might be their wages, it might be their community, it might be a lack of services, it might be a fear about law and order. And it's making those arguments and being in a position to offer an alternative means of participating does actually make a democratic change. People learn through the structures that they are engaged with. And the more of us who engage with the structures, the more the people who don't understand us, who, you know, think I'm a feminazi coming to ruin their lives or whatever, like, you know, I'm a lot smaller in person than I am on the internet. <laughs> You know, like, and to understand why people kick off about Lindy or, or Yasmin or me or Clem Ford or any of our friends, you know, it's because there's a, a, a filter of dehumanisation that goes on. Well, fronting up and being a human being, that is the only thing that's ever made a difference. So the issue is get involved. Now, I want to see if um, we've got any questions. We do? Okay, microphone one. Right, I'd like to pick up on your words. Solidarity and misogyny. Give me one minute. 
The first All About Women event I attended in 2013 was a panel debate on misogyny, specifically Julia Gillard's disgust at sexism in Australian politics. The panellists proved their feminist credentials by expressing solidarity with Gillard. Easy peasy. Ten days ago, Muslim leader Kaisar Trad on the Andrew Bolt programme endorsed the repellent view that striking one's wife is acceptable, albeit as a last resort. Where were the feminist voices then? Very quiet, not so easy. My question is this, how can you or I or anyone in this room profess concern for the welfare of women until we're prepared to call out every expression of misogyny from whatever source or have the we relegated the feminist movement to an ineffectual adjunct of the chattering classes? Well, Madam, thank you very much for your question. But um, you seem to be under the impression that women and feminists in particular haven't been outspoken on this issue. Mm. Literally every feminist in Australia is outspoken against domestic and family violence. Oh. And it doesn't matter who it comes from. I mean, all of us um, are committed publicly and, and articulately and with the full force of the passion, which is our united commitment to stop the scourge of family violence. I denounce anyone who is an apologist for it, and so would any woman in this room. Damn straight. And may I also add that when people ask me as a Muslim woman, oh, you must support Kesar Trad because he's a Muslim and the views that he has, and ask me whether or not I support it, like, I, I can barely vocalise it. It is so condescending. It is so humiliating for someone to say, oh, you must, because you haven't condemned every single terrible thing done in the name of your faith in the history of the world, you must condone it. Which is something people have said to my face. Are people insane? People are insane. Oh, by the way, I'm a Roman Catholic and I'd like to apologise for like 2,000 years of God. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's see what uh, number two's got to say. Hi. Um, so pleased to be here and I'm a great admirer of each of you. I've followed you on this American Life and Van on the internet, on Twitter, and Majid, you're amazing on Q&A the other night, so inspiring. But what I'd like to hear from you is I know that each of you have also really struggled with, as outspoken women, um, you, <laughs> lightning rods for really hateful attention, uh, and how do you cope with that, and how can you um, help those of us who uh, see that happen and go, oh my God, I, you know, you really should keep your head down. That is, that's, that actually, that's a really good question and it comes back to that moment, isn't it? That moment when you're actually talking, when you're trying to clarify your point of view and you get spoken over or you get called a name and put back in your box. Um, actually, it's also the really serious trolling and hideous revolting things that get said about people that are so hurtful. I mean, I mean it affected Julia Gillard, so. Right. Lindy, do you want to take this one? Sure. I mean, we were just talking backstage right before we came out um, that, you know, coincidentally, 
all three of us are in the middle of a, well, me not so much, although I did get some cool attention from the Australian media, um, <laughs> in the middle of, you know, one of these shitstorms where the, in, the internet descends upon you. And can you imagine a, you know, semi-random panel of male writers all being like, oh yeah, there's a petition to get me fired today, again. It just doesn't <laughs> happen. It's completely gendered. And it, this idea that, oh, it's just the internet, this is just the nature of the internet and it's something that you have to put up with to do your job. We're just trying to do our jobs. We're just trying to do our jobs, just like Hillary was trying to do her job. And it's, um, you know, I actually find that, you know, that level of incredulity that I feel uh, very helpful. I'm very angry that we're put into that situation and that we're forced to deal with emotional abuse, really violent emotional abuse, and potentially real, real-world violence. Mm. I mean, I'm afraid. Uh, I'm afraid a lot. I, you know, people know, I live in a pretty small city. People know where I live and what I look like. My personal information's been posted online. I'm very slightly paranoid when I go out. People have stolen pictures of my children and posted them on internet forums. And, you know, that's something that I have to do. I mean, I started as a film critic. You know, it's not even like every day I go out and write a column that's like, all men must die. You know, I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, although. And the weird thing is men get to write that about us and nobody thinks it's weird, mm. right? Men get to say that at the podium in a presidential debate. Um, yeah. yeah, so, but in terms of coping, I, I find that anger really, really valuable. It's very motivating. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you just have to keep, what are you going to do? Yeah. Am I going to quit my job? Am I going to let them drive me out of my job? Because mm. that's what they're trying to do. I think it's about, Van's word is solidarity, right? The thing that I find most helpful is finding other women that are in similar situations, that can like feel the rage similarly. That, or sometimes I just need to put distance away from it and I need to find like a space where I can be like, those motherfuckers, right? <laughs> and, and it's like, and you can say that because it's true, firstly, but, but also because you need, a, you need space. And you, it's also, I think the thing that I have um, found most useful is to admit that I'm not fine about it, right? And that it is incredibly hard. Mm. And that, yes, you can have all these people behind you, but when you're in that moment on television, in the front of the paper, whatever it is, being, you know, having another petition in your name trying to get you fired, that it is incredibly isolating. But we can't let them win, mm. right? The moment you let them, like the moment we shut up, the moment we stop doing what we're doing, we've let them win. And that, that anger around not letting them win, that's what keeps me going. Yeah. The, line, the line I keep saying to myself, particularly in the Trump era, is die on the right side. <laughs> like, die on the right side. Do everything that you can do. And if they hate you, get up. Keep fighting. And if they want to knock you down, get up. Keep fighting. And if they speak over you and insult you and dehumanise you and attack you in the street, which has happened to me, and send, like, packages of abusive material to your house and drive you from your home, which has happened to me, and stalk you and swear at you, keep fighting. Keep going and recognise that you have the strength of not only all the women you know, but all the women who came before you and the women who will come after you. Because women died for the right to vote. Women died for their right to, to be enfranchised equally in society. Sacrifices were made, relationships were sacrificed, standard of living was sacrificed, 
All of these things have brought each and every one of us to a position where we are actually allowed to come into this room unchaperoned and have our own thoughts and have our own feelings and go wherever we want to go. And that is the tradition you are part of and that is the tradition that you must find strength in. We have time for one very quick one, and it's got to be really quick, three. Very quick. Um, I'm Monica, I'm from the United States. My question has to do with Trump supporters. So the reality is that a lot of white women voted for Donald Trump. And my question is, is that because they chose their, their whiteness and their comfort in that over their identity as women? Um, and if so, or if not, do we, particularly white women, have an obligation to try to bring them out of the dark side, or do we forget them, or, um, yeah, how do, how do you level with that? Yeah, definitely white women have a responsibility to talk to other white women, and absolutely those white women chose their whiteness over their gender, um, and also over their care for their fellow humans. I mean, it's just barbaric. Um, and, you know, when I said earlier that there are a lot of people who find great safety in these old traditionalist systems, that includes white women. You know, there are a lot of women who have sort of done this calculation, or maybe not even consciously, and, and think, okay, well, you know, it's safer for me to hitch my wagon to this, to this man um, than to actually stand on my feet and advocate for other people, advocate for myself, even. Um, and of course, that's an illusory safety. It's not real. Um, and, you know, it's... This kind of goes back to that last question, talking about... Um, dying on the right side. There isn't, any, there isn't any life that you can live and not be, uh, not be harassed and not be endangered and assaulted and, and not, you know, not be the victim of, of violence and oppression. So I can't imagine choosing that side, choosing to just sort of go along with it and make the most of it and hope that I'm safe in this, by choosing this structure in which I don't have autonomy and I don't have any power. Um, I can't imagine choosing that side. But 53% of white women, in, white women who voted in America did, um, which is a great shame upon <laughs> white women. And um, it's tough, though, figuring out that line between do I engage with these people who seem, you know, I, I, have, I know people who voted for Trump, um, not, you know, not no one close to me, but people in my family, and... <laughs> I just mean, like, not immediate family, but further out family. And I, and I don't know what to... We're actually having a family reunion this summer, then I just got the invitation, and it has a big thing on it that says, no political talk allowed. Like, well, good luck with that. <laughs> we'll see. Um, but I, I don't know, I mean, I, I think... You can sort of smell when there's, when someone is permeable, you know, when there's a window. Mm. I don't mean literally, you know, I mean like you can, <laughs> you can detect. Whether they smell nasty, that, that's what you're trying to say. No, I, you can you can sort of. Trump smell for women. Yeah. <laughs> you oh, can God. sort of, I feel like, I feel like my instincts are good and if someone seems like they might be at least open to having a conversation, I can tell, and I take those opportunities. Some people do not seem permeable. They seem closed. And in those cases, 
I think one of the most important things that we can do uh, as, is, is express that kind of solidarity publicly and hold that line and stay on that message and, not, and don't waver and let people see you not wavering and not being swayed by this really, really aggressive messaging that we're getting from outside. But I don't know, what does anyone else think? Yeah, I think, <laughs> you know, so many, so many of those communities, so many of those communities full of Trump voters, like in all of those Rust Belt states, you know, in Michigan, in Ohio, like, where was the solidarity when the factory was closing, mm. when people's homes were being devalued because the factory had closed and everybody lost their job? And this, this population of American voters who had lost their access to any kind of, you know, class aspiration or change or the American dream, that's where hate fosters mm. in desperation. You know, and it's important... People talk about intersectionality a lot. Intersectionality is not just a conversation for university students. It's, an, it's actually a way to live your life and fight injustice wherever it is, whatever kind of injustice it is, whether it's social injustice or economic injustice or judicial injustice, wherever it happens, you put yourself on the line because it gives your own life meaning. And it's your example. It's not your talk, it's not your conversation, it's not your fancy words, but it's your example of personal commitment that is the most powerful political argument you can ever make. With that, Yasmin, quick wrap them be fighting words. I think it is about deciding what our values are and then doing everything we possibly can to live in line with those values, right? And that that's, can be difficult, right? It's not an easy thing to do, to, to decide to live the values that we, not that we think that we should have, but that we actually have, right? And when, I mean, in, in answer to that question, as a Muslim brown woman, the conversations that I have most of the time are justifying my, exist my right to exist, right? And my right to participate in the world as an equal. So the, the best thing is for other, be other people to also be having those conversations and not me to constantly be having to justify my right to exist, right? It is, it is about solidarity, right? It is about other people being like, you know what? Yes, that injustice does not affect me directly, but I value justice for all. And, the, and in this country, it also means justice for the First Nations people in Australia, because that is a conversation that we don't have enough. It means make, and it's, it can be difficult, it can be exhausting, it can make people throw all sorts of names our way, but if we choose to live for justice, if we choose to live our lives in lines with the values that we espouse, that we say that we espouse, but we really do that, that is exactly what gives our life meaning. And that means that we will have an impact in the world, no matter, even if it is changing one person's mind, even if it, it is having, giving one person a feeling of worth, then we really have had an impact in the world, and then it is worth it. That's a great way to end. With that, unfortunately, we've got all these lines I'd love to get to you, but unfortunately, we're going to have to end the discussion right there. Please, a round of applause for these amazing women. <laughs> Yasmin Abdelmajid, Lindy West, Van Badham. <laughs>